This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. I'm Meenakshi from Stories of Win, and I'm thrilled to be here today with Dr. Rebecca Shansky, who's an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at Northeastern University, Boston. Her lab studies sex and hormone-dependent behaviors and underlying neural mechanisms. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. We'd love to start off asking about your neuroscience origin story. How and when did you first become interested in studying the brain? Uh, It was in college. I did not know what I wanted to do with my life. And when I had to pick a major, I chose psychology, not for any really good reason, honestly. Um, But as part of the psychology major, you have to take a class in behavioral neuroscience. And that was when I was suddenly like, oh, this is very cool. And I think I would like to keep learning about this. And so I took as many neuroscience classes as I could. And this was already my junior year. So I was a very late bloomer. I'm not one of these people who's like, oh, I always wanted to be a scientist. Like definitely not. Um, But I, once I was hooked, I was all in basically. And I Uh, applied to work in the lab of my behavioral neuroscience professor and um, started doing some research there and it became my work study job and um, everyone said like oh this is what you really like doing then you should go to grad school and I was like okay (laughs) Uh, I don't know what else to do so I will do that and I ended up this is all you know again just like so behind everybody else in terms of the the coursework and even knowing what it meant to have to go to, like to apply to grad school. So I graduated, I took a year off and I applied to, um, PhD programs then. Um, and then, uh, and then I started grad school the year after. Did you already start studying, um, sex differences in behavior and were you interested in that even before graduate school? Um, nope. <laughs> um, yeah. Everything feel. I mean, this is going to be a recurring theme where it feels like everything just kind of fell into place at the right time. I did not have a perfect vision of myself and what I wanted to be or what I was interested in. I just was like, neuroscience is cool. I was really into rodent behavior neuroscience. And um, when I started grad school, I wanted to study animal research that was relevant to mental illness. And so I picked the lab of Amy Arnston, who studied stress and the neural signaling mechanisms that underlie cognitive dysfunction that results from stress exposure. And like everybody else in the world, basically, uh, she was only studying males, but she had gotten a small internal grant to look at sex differences within her model. And she essentially just said, Oh, do you want this for your, you know, your project? And I was like, sure, this is interesting. And so I took this project, which is just looking at sex differences in the effects of stress on working memory performance. And I found these really striking sex differences. They appeared to be 
dependent on the estrus cycle and on circulating estrogen. And at the time that was a really big deal because nobody, uh, or not nobody, but uh, very few people were studying anything in females. They thought that it was just all going to be the same um, in males and females. And once I was really doing literature searches and, um, and trying to understand how my work fit in with the bigger picture of you know, stress world, I realized how little work had been done specific, like in this specific area and how few people were really thinking about how males and females might be different in the way they process stress, despite the fact that every mental illness that is caused by stress, like major depressive disorder, anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, all are much more common in women than they are in men. And so here it just seemed like this huge gap in our understanding of what's leading to these gender disparities in humans. Um, why are we not looking for sex differences in our animal models? So that was how I kind of got on this uh, this trajectory that's now very much my, uh, my, you know, primary focus. So if you were to summarize your, your thesis and your main findings during your PhD in like a couple of sentences, um, what would you say? So what I found in my PhD thesis was that female rats were, uh, it's a little more sensitive to the effects of stress on working memory performance. In other words, it took lower levels of stress exposure to cause a cognitive deficit. And this was true. This was most true when females were in estrous phases that had high levels of estrogen. And it was also true if we remove the ovaries to remove circulating um, hormones and then did uh, sort of a long-term estrogen replacement. Those animals seem to be more sensitive to stress. Um, and uh, so we showed that using a couple of different stress effects, and we did a little bit of work trying to determine what signaling mechanisms estrogen was affecting. And we found a potential role for the um, noradrenergic alpha-2A receptor um, and so that was kind of where things landed at the, at the end of my thesis. That is very interesting. And were you already, like, how were you, um, thinking about your findings in the context of, um, just the translational implications and, and how that would just affect, you know, humans and, and, um, just the, the broader significance of your work? Yeah, I mean, I think the broader significance is is mostly that we have to be paying attention to research in both male and female animals. I think it becomes a little bit of a stretch when you start saying, oh, like female animals are exactly like women and male animals are going to tell us everything there is to know about men. But it's more like there are different ways that um, the that stress can affect the brain and understanding what that kind of diversity looks like on a neurobiological level is what's going to lead us to find new treatments that could help anyone. Very well said. Um, so in terms of your scientific trajectory at this point, were there like, were, were you pretty inspired to just continue down the academic road? Did you consider any alternate careers at this point? Um, or like, how was just the transition to your postdoctoral position? 
So the transition in postdoc was very, it was almost comically smooth. Um, now I, you know, I think it's pretty hard to find a postdoc, but at the time, um, I just thought, well, I, I wanted, I really wanted to move to New York and I was like, well, who is in New York? That's a big stress person, Bruce McEwen. And so I had just had my main PhD paper come out. And so I emailed him and I sent him the paper and I said, hi, I'm graduating soon. Here's my new paper. I think your research is a really good next step for me. And um, and he had just gotten this big collaborative grant. It's called the Conti Center grant from NIMH that included um, Joe Ledoux from NYU and John Morrison from Mount Sinai School of Medicine. And so he was like, why don't you come down? You can give a talk and we'll you know, see if we think you're a good fit. Um, and so I did that and um, I got the job and I was really excited because they were really taking things to the next level for me, which was really getting down into what's going on in the brain, right? So everything I had done for my PhD was pretty strictly behavior, behavior pharmacology um, kind of work. And what I wanted to do was really look at what's happening in the brain. And so I was able to join that lab, learn a lot about doing neuroanatomical techniques, structural plasticity, fluorescent microscopy, um, all of the, these new tools that allowed me to, to keep diving into understanding uh, sort of the interactions of sex, estrogen, and stress, and what happens in some of the neural circuits that we're really interested in, like prefrontal amygdala connections. Very cool. And so what did you find at the circuit level uh, during your postdoc? And was it like kind of complementary to what you saw at a more like molecular and receptor level during your PhD? Yeah, it was it was complementary to a certain extent. So in my my PhD work was acute stress, which means sort of like when you're stressed in the moment, what happens to the way your brain functions? And what I did for my postdoc was what we call chronic stress, which means after a long period of extended stress exposure, what has changed inside your brain? So they weren't like directly comparable, but I was asking similar questions, which, you know, were, what are the effects, uh, you know, are there sex effects and how stress affects uh, the structure of neurons and does estrogen affect that? And the newest piece that I was bringing in was this circuit level analysis. And um, so normally the way you do structural plasticity work is you have um, a group of animals that doesn't get stressed and a group of animal that, animals that do get stressed. And then you do kind of a random structural analysis of individual neurons in whatever brain region you're interested in, like the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex. These were areas that had been studied in the lab for decades and found that in males, exposure to stress caused a reduction in dendritic material in um, uh, in both of these areas, in other words, the neurons were essentially shrinking. They were losing their ability to receive information from other um, from other areas of the brain. And so uh, just kind of intuitively, this makes sense. Stress is bad for your brain and causes your neurons to shrink. What I found was that in females, specifically in these neurons that start in the prefrontal cortex and project to the amygdala, 
those neurons, when they're exposed to stress, actually expand, they get bigger. And this went counter to everything I thought I was going to see, right? You know, the logic of the experimental design was like, well, stress causes neurons to shrink and women are more likely to get, you know, they're more sensitive to stress. So we're probably going to see massive shrinkage in the female neurons. And instead we saw the exact opposite. And so that was really surprising, but it also helps you think a little bit more deeply about what, what does it mean for something to be adaptive versus maladaptive? Um, and I think when it comes to neural structure, you can have too little and you can also have too much. And you can imagine that if you've got all these dendrites reaching out, making all these connections, you're going to lose the signal to noise ratio on that end. Um, as well. So it was kind of eye-opening in, um, in that sense to just teach us a little bit more how to, how to think about our data, how to interpret, um, you know, what we find and think about what, what is good versus bad for the brain. And is that even a thing? That's super interesting, especially like when you have a finding that, that first seems very counterintuitive. And then when you can make sense of that, Mm -hmm. Um, that's a beautiful feeling. And, uh, did you also see estrogen dependent and like hormonal status dependent, um, changes in the neural structure? Yes. So in those animals, we also did the ovariectomies and, um, and so, yeah, so I believe that that effect was specific to animals that had had their estrogen replaced and not in the animals that had been ovariectomized and did not have their estrogen replaced. Cool. Um, and now go, just going back to like um, your your trajectory and um, were there like challenges in this phase of the career for you? Um, or again, was it pretty straightforward that the next step was like you wanted to start your lab and was the transition pretty smooth again? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Our, um, no, I, I did think I wanted to be a PI and, um, and keep doing this research, but that like, that's really where you hit the bottleneck, right? Like there's thousands and thousands of postdocs. There are not thousands and thousands of faculty jobs every year. Um, and so it's very competitive and I, my papers had kind of a hard time getting published, I think just because again, doing this kind of sex difference research, people were not quite, they didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know what it meant. It was complicated from a statistical standpoint, more so than if you're just studying males. Um, and, it, you know, and I think also because of the counterintuitiveness of it, that was an additional challenge. So I was a little slow um, on getting my, my work out there and, getting myself to a point where I thought I might be competitive for a faculty job, right? At a certain level, it's like, you can't just say like, oh, well, I want to apply for a faculty job. You have to have a CV that is at least somewhat impressive in order to be competitive. And I knew that I just didn't quite have that yet. So, um, and then at the same time, so this is now like, I don't know, five or six years into my postdoc, um, the lab lost the Connie Center grant. So, um, and I had to basically, I had a, I had had a um, 
NRSA and F32 and that ran out. And so I actually was unemployed um, for a couple of months and I was starting, I was applying for faculty jobs and I was applying for um, like editor jobs at journals and applying for research scientist positions, et cetera. And I ended up getting just so lucky to find a lab at Columbia that was kind of just getting off the ground and they were looking for someone with neuroanatomy experience to help them launch essentially and to help them hire a new, like another postdoc. And um, they knew that I was on job market and maybe I was going to get a faculty job and they were just totally okay with everything. And um, it just worked out so perfectly that I was able to spend about six months in that lab while I finished negotiations and everything with, um, with Northeastern. But it was a very um, tenuous time for a little while. It was very stressful, very existentially, um, you know, hard to think about. So um, that was yeah, definitely not the smooth transition. I was like, hi, I want a job. Can I have it? Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was, that was a rough period for sure. But then I got this job at Northeastern and, um, it's a really, it was the perfect job for me, I think. Yeah. Our listeners love to hear about challenges that our interviewees face, because I feel everyone, um, faces challenges it could be different and in different phases of the career but um it's pretty universal and our listeners generally love to listen how you overcome that and um mm-hmm. and how you bounce back um and uh overcome that so thanks for sharing that and so yeah uh, and you, yeah you started your own lab at northeastern in 2011 and yeah how was it setting up and leading your own lab um after your postdoc yeah, setting up, I mean, it is an amazing um, experience because you go from being in this very high functioning lab where everything just works and everyone knows how to do everything to getting an empty space and a bunch of money. And they're like, okay, go make a lab. And there is a lot that you are just never trained for um, in terms of hiring what you know kind of questions to ask when you're interviewing potential students or potential technicians um what things are worth investing your startup in versus what things are not and so there's a lot of that kind of stuff that it's just like nobody tells you and you have to try and fail a couple of times maybe um in order to figure out what's important to you because it isn't even going to be kind of different for everybody so um I came here and I, you know, luckily Boston is such a great place to be and to recruit people to because there's lots of college students here already. There's an amazing science community. And so uh, being able to attract people to come live in Boston and work in a lab is not that hard. Um, So I was able to hire a technician and I got a grad student and Northeastern has a really amazing undergrad community here the behavioral neuroscience major is very popular the students are excellent and so um for uh, the entire 12 years that i've been here the undergrads have been a huge huge 
component of the work that, um, that we do in the lab. So, um, yeah, so you just kind of buy the things you want, think about what experiments you want to do first and, and do it. <laughs> and there's no one to tell you what to do. It's just you and your brain. <laughs> and how have your research interests evolved over the last 10 years? And what are your lab's current research interests? Yeah, so definitely things have evolved uh, to a certain extent. Um, I came in wanting the behavior that I used in my lab to be fear conditioning. That's what I learned from Joe Ledoux during my postdoc. And I initially wanted to study uh, extinction of conditioned fear because this is the learning process that exposure therapy for people with PTSD is based on. And so I was like, okay, here I'm looking at like, how can we make fear responses go down? What happened in the process of that was that we discovered that the expression of fear can be different in males and females and that females will exhibit a different, a sort of an active um, fear response that you don't usually see in males. Males usually, if they're afraid, they just freeze. And this freezing behavior is what we base all of fear conditioning data on. And if animals have low freezing responses, that is interpreted to mean either they didn't learn to be afraid or they are just not afraid. And what we're finding is that, especially in females, low freezing doesn't necessarily mean those things. It means they are using these other strategies to, um, to respond. And so the lab has very much um, now kind of zeroed in on this behavior, trying to understand what it means, why does it happen in females, what are the neural circuits involved. And that process has really made me become an advocate for rethinking these very classic paradigms. What needs to change if you're studying in, in females or what do you need to be more cognizant of as a neuroscientist, as especially as a behavioral neuroscientist? So I've become much more active in, um, I don't know what the, just sort of like broader conversations about behavioral neuroscience research at large, as opposed to my very specific research questions, which we have as well. But um, there's more to what we're doing than just our own research. I think. For sure. Um, this also reminds me of a really beautiful uh, perspective article in, in science that you wrote um, called Our, Our Hormones, a Female Problem for Animal Research. Um, do you feel there are just challenges at least back then, that were inherent to just studying the effects of sex and hormones on brain and behavior? Back then in 2019, when I wrote the paper. <laughs> um, no, uh, I mean, maybe when you, from during your postdoc and oh, then when you, when you just well, transitioned I, and set so up your research program. So when I was in grad school and my postdoc, if you wanted to study a female rat, the immediate question was, what are you going to do about their hormones? Like that was the main problem that you would have. And I, and you know, and I believed that as well at the time I didn't question it. And I think the idea that the first thing you think of when you think of a female animal is the fact that it's got hormones and this isn't the kind of thing that you 
think of when you think of male animals, you know, males have probably hormones too, um, is based in gender stereotypes that are just like part of the way, uh, at least like Western humans think about things. And that was what I was trying to point out in the science perspective was that if you are thinking that you can't study females because you have to study their hormones, that is a position worth introspecting on where that belief comes from. And so what I was trying to argue for is an approach to studying uh, males and females that doesn't pit them as females are basically just males, but they also have hormones and that the hormones aren't like the singular driving factor of whatever data you collect in a female animal, that female brains are just as useful. They are just as true and fundamental in terms of the neurobiological processes that, that, that you can discover in them as you would in, um, by studying males and really just trying to, uh, to shine a little bit of a light on, you know, what I think is basically just implicit sexism that can infiltrate the way that we as scientists approach our research. So, um, that was what led to that, to that piece was mostly hearing people complain about having to study females because that meant that they would have to look at the extra cycle. And I was like, you actually don't have to do that. And you should think about why you think you have to. Right. I mean, I guess changing that mindset that kind of existed at that time could have been a challenge, but also, I mean, it's huge. And like you said, the effect it has is just like not just in your lab, but just the whole community. Um, So that's great. Um, And just reflecting on the last decade as a PI, what's been the most rewarding thing and also what's been the most challenging thing? Uh, The most rewarding thing is... uh, is the mentorship, I would say. And watching the students learn, become their own grown-up scientists and really see their trajectory, especially for PhD students, I think you undergo the biggest changes. I mean, not just, you know, it's one to be go from being 23 to 28. That's, you know, just as a human, that's a big change, but also to have that mirror the way that they develop as scientists, that is really rewarding. Um, it has been, I will say, also very rewarding to see the changes that are happening in the field um, as a result of the sex as biological variable mandate. And I, you know, I've been really working hard with pieces like this one to help people think very deeply about how they can do good research that is translational to be to careful behavioral neuroscience. And I feels like the needle is moving a little bit, and I do feel like little bit like I had something to do with that. And that has been very rewarding to feel like I've had a, um, an, an, like a positive impact on the field in general. Um, the most challenging thing kind of going along with both of those is again, this goes back to like what nobody tells you or what you, you're never trained to do. The people management side of running a lab is challenging. Everybody is different. Everybody requires different mentorship techniques and having to adapt in the moment with someone, you know, maybe you don't know very well in the beginning, that is, um, that's challenging because 
when you are a postdoc, especially, you know, you just kind of like do things the way you want to, and then to have different expectations and different, um, needs for everybody is, is a challenge, but it's, I mean, it's an interesting challenge that helps me grow as a PI as well. So that's really good. And also of course, getting money is a, a big challenge. Um, <laughs> keeping lab funded is very stressful because I just want, you know, the thing I care about the most is creating an enriched environment for, um, for my students and trainees. And I feel like if I can't, you know, give them the tools and the resources that they need in order to do their work, then I have failed. So that's definitely something that keeps me up at night. It's been it's been amazing to like capture the highlights of your scientific trajectory and and you, you were also really nice with sharing like the hurdles and the roadblocks that you faced on the way. Um, but what would you say was the thing that kind of like made you overcome that and especially like the, the the transition during your you know from your postdoc to like when you were a research scientist and then started your lab um so what are um what are things that generally help you uh overcome such challenges i just i i don't know i'm not very good at giving up on things i just like i'm gonna keep going until i really truly hit a wall. And so, you know, whatever situation I'm in, I'm very much in just problem solving mode. And I try not to ruminate or think about things too much. I'm just like, how to like, is this fixable in any way? Is there some kind of path to solving this problem? And if there is, I'm going to try it. Um, and I really only like cut my losses when it's clear there is no, there are no paths anymore. So um, I'm just, I think in that sense, I'm kind of a uh, just practical person. Um, so I'm just going to keep going until I like literally can't go anymore. <laughs> yeah. And in terms of people um, who or who is your source of inspiration and have your own mentors kind of, also influenced you and also the way you mentor um, your students? Oh, yeah. I, my PhD mentor, Amy Arnston, is by far the biggest inspiration to me. She's such a thoughtful scientist. She's, and from day one, I was just like, this is who I have to do my PhD with. She's so brilliant. She cares about all the right things. She wants to help people. She's so smart. She's a amazing neuroanatomist. I mean, I just, everything about who she is as a person and a scientist, it was exactly what I wanted. Um, what I dreamed being a scientist would be like. So, um, yeah, she's, she's the main one. Great. And, um, if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give yourself, um, as you know, as during your graduate school or postdoc or as an early career researcher? Oh, that's such a good question. I I mean, I probably would have told myself to take some more biology classes because that was also, <laughs> I, so one thing I didn't mention in the beginning when you were asking me about how I got on the path in the first place. When I was in college, 
I, I was not, like I said, I was a psychology major, but I wasn't really interested in science at all. And I didn't take any, I didn't take general chemistry. I didn't take orgo. I didn't take biology. I was living the liberal arts dream, taking literature and art and Eastern religion and painting and film. I mean, everything I could, I was just like, I want it. I want it all. I have a lot of interests. And when I got to grad school, I was in this PhD program, neurobiology degree. And I was like, wow, I don't know what like any of these words are. Um, and so that was very, that was very challenging. Um, so I don't know. It's, that would have made life a little bit easier, but generally speaking, I just, I seem to have a way of figuring out how to get to the next step, whether it's like, it's not necessarily the way it goes for people who can think 10 steps ahead and make plans, but I've made it work (laughs) somehow. So, um, this is another way, but I do, and I do actually think that that can be an important message for, um, uh, for people that you can look around and see it, it can feel like everyone's got everything all figured out and they know exactly what it is they need to do every step of the way. But that's really not always the case. But if you surround yourself with good mentors, peers who believe in you and who can help you, those are the those are the people that will get you get you through the harder times is really having a network, um, and strong social support. I think that's so, so critical. I do really, um, love the recurring theme in our interview, which is that sometimes, you know, things will just snap into place when you least expect Mm -hmm. it to. And, um, you just have to not give up and and keep pushing yeah. and and also like i really liked what you mentioned one of the things that you mentioned is the as a very rewarding thing which is like starting at a time where there were very few people publishing data with like female mice and female rats and now we have definitely like pushed the field in a direction yeah. where people realize the importance of not having any kind of implicit bias um yeah. that's great okay so Thank you so much for your time. And before we end, uh, we just like to um, kind of ask a fun question. Do you, and maybe you could tell us about your either your daily routine or your favorite hobbies or activities outside the lab that just generally make you like feel more relaxed and refreshed mm-hmm. when you come back to lab. Yeah. So, well, my daily routine is boring. I'm not going to tell you about that. That's just going to work. Um, but I do have a lot of hobbies, um, because like I mentioned a minute ago, I just like everything. Um, and my two big hobbies right now are gardening. Um, so I have a vegetable garden in our backyard, growing tomatoes, cucumbers, squash, and that to me is so rewarding. I love it. Um, I also, recently started learning to play the drums. Um, and that has been so much fun. I am obsessed. I love it. I think about drums a lot and, um, I hear music differently now and it's just been also just very surprisingly rewarding to be learning a new physical skill. Um, in adulthood. Um, so that's been real. Those are my two, my two favorite things right now. 
That's great. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for spending time with us and sharing your story. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much.